Hello and welcome to this first episode of Surreal Politics. Today is March 4th, 2023. I'm very happy to be with you. Per our episode title and the branding throughout the show, the theme of this production is Realpolitik in an Unreal World. It is the position of the show's production team that the politics of the United States have become bogged down in ideological nonsense. Nonsense ideologies, yes, to be sure, but beyond this, ideology as such has become an impediment to meaningful progress. We have opinions about the merits of particular ideologies, and they will become clearer in due course, but the premise on which our topic for today is based is that the more meritorious ideological factions are actually the best example of the problem we are describing. What is needed to address this state of affairs is a realpolitik of the right to counter the surreal nightmarish policy agenda of the left. Hence the name surreal politics with a K in politics. What is realpolitik? The answer may very well depend on who you ask. Ask 10 people, you might get 10 different answers. Let us begin with the safety of the Merriam-Webster dictionary. It offers us a single definition. Politics based on practical and material factors rather than on theoretical or ethical objectives. This will suit our purposes just fine to start, though we will be expanding upon this substantially. At base, what we are talking about is goal-oriented behavior. Theoretical and ethical concerns have their place, but it is our position that the theory must conform to the reality and not the other way around. That might sound like a truism to the uninitiated, but anyone familiar with the lunacy of American politics understands that our problems largely stem from the politically active pursuing a contrary course. They begin with a theory. They see the world does not conform to this theory. Then they act politically in hopes of coercing the rest of society into said conformity. To say this has had mixed results throughout the course of human events, we consider a charitable interpretation. A less charitable interpretation would be to say that it has led to millions of deaths, the destruction of countless millennia of man-hours of prudent effort and intellectual input. Worse still, a cursory understanding of genetics reveals that it has erased from our gene pool countless geniuses, warriors, graceful women, and others whose lineage would otherwise be improving our lives today beyond the capacity of our imaginations. Nationalists often say, never forget what they've taken from you. And indeed, we ought not forget, but more to the point. We are deprived of more than we can even conceive of. The attribution to Edmund Burke is disputed, but surely you have all heard the line, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. David Bromwich, Sterling Professor of English at Yale University and author of The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke, told Reuters once, Burke was sometimes exorbitant, but he was never silly, and the thing that strikes you about this saying on a moment's reflection is how little sense it makes. The silence of good men isn't the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil. The persons advancing the evil, whether in command or in the rank and file, must be strong and determined, and the lukewarm must be either cowed into submission or willing to go along because evil seems to prosper. More to our point. Evil triumphs despite the vigorous activity of good men when said vigorous activity fails to stop evil. If good men run themselves ragged on treadmills as evil marches past them, they can hardly be accused of laziness. Cowardice, perhaps, but not inaction. 
We don't mean to diminish the value of prayer here at Surreal Politiques, but perhaps it makes a better analogy than treadmills. An army might pray for victory in battle, and this may confer benefit thereon. It is not for us to determine. We can, however, say with reasonable confidence that if an army prays instead of battle, then the battle will most assuredly be lost, and that were these soldiers to then meet their God subsequently, that he would not look kindly upon them. There is quite a bit of analogous behavior in politics, we think it's safe to say. Politically active people conjure in their minds dogmatic, doctrinaire ideals which they either restrain themselves with or attempt to restrain others with. The phenomenon that troubles us is when good men restrain themselves with ideology and evil marches on to restrain others. The term realpolitik was coined by a German man named Ludwig von Rokoe in the mid-1800s. He wrote a book about it, which has yet to be entirely translated into English, but the title translated is Foundations of Realpolitik. In volume two, he wrote, The realpolitik does not move in a foggy future, but in the present's field of vision. It does not consider its task to consist in the realization of ideals, but in the attainment of concrete ends, and it knows with reservations to content itself with partial results if their complete attainment is not achievable for the time being. Ultimately, the real politique is an enemy of all kinds of self-delusions. But Rocot was not always such a hard-nosed realist. On April 3, 1833, at the age of 23, he was among a number of radicals who attempted to storm the main guard post of the military garrison at Frankfurt, not far from the parliament. History recorded the event as the Frankfurter Walkingsturm. I probably said that wrong, pardon me. Their aim was to gain control of the treasury of the German Confederation and spark revolutions across the German states. The attempt was a failure, and Rocco was among those arrested trying to flee. He was sentenced to life imprisonment for the uprising. Rocco was quite fortunate to have some very dedicated friends, however, and he managed to escape to France, where he lived in exile for 10 years. Fearing for his safety from Otto von Bismarck, he then fled to Italy. In 1853, he wrote Foundations of Realpolitik. By 1869, he had returned to Germany and become a deputy to the North German Reichstag. In 1871, he was elected to the German Reichstag as a member of the National Liberal Party. I'm still reading about Rocot, and so I'm not going to say that I agree with his entire worldview or that this is what our show is based on. But going off this briefest of summaries, I would say the man knew a thing or two about politics, and in particular, about turning around a failed effort, a subject which I have a very personal interest in. In some ways, he reminds me of another German statesman who once found himself on the wrong side of law and later rose to power through a national party, albeit one with less use for liberalism. A man who risks his life trying to overthrow his government and ends up in prison can hardly be accused of lacking convictions, even if he does manage to escape. But to spend another 40 years fighting for his cause, I would say, requires an altogether different sort of fortitude. That he finally managed to actually get elected after this, I'd say, makes him more than worthy of our study. Most revolutions do not end well for the people who start them. They are almost never the ones who finish them. The sort of ideological fervor that sparks revolutions typically clouds the judgment in ways that are disadvantageous in war. 
In those instances where the government is too weak to defend itself, such as was the case when Lenin overthrew Russia's provisional government in October 1917, that ideological fervor clouds no less the judgment of the governing authorities. In those instances, it is the people they govern who suffer. Rocco was clearly guided by fanaticism as he attempted to overthrow the German Confederation. Met with the harsh realities of his time, he didn't commit suicide. He didn't give up. He analyzed the political landscape. He protected his life and his freedom by whatever means he found necessary. He developed and promoted the idea of realpolitik, and after nearly 40 years of determined struggle, he returned to his home country and he took his seat at the table. Now, I say that he developed the concept of realpolitik, but he was hardly the first to stumble upon it. One of the more famous names typically associated with the idea is Niccolò Machiavelli. Best known for his political treatise, The Prince, Machiavelli is not infrequently referred to as the father of modern political philosophy and political science. The Prince, if you don't already know, shocks the conscience of many a reader. It describes political power to be seized and maintained by a monarch, and however useful its application today was not written with democracy in mind. It describes political power as an exercise largely of force and deception, and accordingly it has little use for ethics. To quote one of the more famous, though tamer, passages from the book, From this arises an argument, whether it is better to be loved than to be feared, or the contrary. The answer is that one would like to be both one and the other. But since it is difficult to be both together, it is much safer to be feared than to be loved when one of the two must be lacking. For one can generally say this about men. They are ungrateful, fickle, simulators, and deceivers, avoiders of danger, and greedy for gain. While you work for their benefit, they are completely yours, offering you their blood, their property, their lives, and their sons, as I said above, when the need to do so is far away. But when it draws nearer to you, they turn away. The prince who relies entirely upon their words comes to ruin, finding himself stripped naked of other preparations. For friendships acquired by a price and not by greatness and nobility of spirit are purchased but not owned, and at the proper time cannot be spent. Men are less hesitant about injuring someone who makes himself loved than one who makes himself feared, because love is held together by a chain of obligation that, since men are a wretched lot, is broken on every occasion for their own self-interest, but fear is sustained by a dread of punishment that will never abandon you. The prince is viewed by some as a manual for tyranny, and by others as a straightforward description of reality. Here at Surreal Politiques, we find ourselves in the latter category. Government is force. All governments threaten their citizens and subjects with violence, and with exceedingly few exceptions, this is considered uncontroversial. Were this not the case, there would be no police officers, no armies, no prisons, and no state. There would also be no economy, no civilization, no peace, and no justice, only barbarism. When left-wing maniacs roam the streets in packs, setting fire to buildings, looting stores, and beating and murdering anyone who might question the wisdom of such acts, they say they are advancing social justice. Like so much of what plagues us from the left-wing, this is not only a lie, but an inversion of the truth. It is anti-social behavior taken to the utmost cartoonish heights, and the word injustice only fails to describe it in falling short of the mark. It is ruled by criminals, and viewed in this light, defund the police seems far more coherent a policy than most conservatives tend to give it credit for. It is not misguided in the slightest. It is straightforward and rational. Criminals want to commit crimes, and they view the police as an impediment to this goal. So they want the government to stop paying the police. In this sense, you could say it is itself a sort of realpolitik. 
Recognizing that civilization is made possible by fear and violence is hardly the mark of a tyrant. Order is the product of imposition and justice the product of order. If criminals do not fear the state, then the citizenry will fear the criminals, and so fear and violence are permanent and inescapable features of the human condition. For rulers to forfeit the fear of their subjects is not to free them from fear. It is to hand that power over to whomever is bold enough to seize it for themselves. A ruler interested in the well-being of his subjects must use force to protect them. Moreover, he must maintain his power at all times and protect it with force. Since no man can be always and everywhere and no group of men will do his bidding for free, he must provide for a vast network of police, soldiers, prison guards, and above all bureaucrats to extend his dominion over a territory that comprises defensible borders. To make such provisions, he requires tremendous resources, and who else but those who benefit from his protection is going to pay for this? Shall the ruler ask politely that the people provide for their own protection? Perhaps. But what if they politely decline? What if just one politely declines and yet enjoys the benefits of this protection all the same? How long will it take for others to catch on to the incentives of such a system? Not long, we speculate. Thus there is a tax code and a vast army of button pushers backed up by armed men who will arrest those who do not pay and end the lives of those who resist. Is it worth a gunfight to collect a few dollars from a businessman who resents a president? Arguably not. Is it worth a gunfight to prevent society from falling apart and being ruled by uncontrolled mayhem? You better believe it, and anyone who forgets this has no right to participate in serious political discussions. There is nothing enlightened or benevolent about pacifism. Anyone with a concern for ethics must previously concern himself with order. To do this, he must first concern himself with power, and from then on in perpetuity, he must unceasingly concern himself with the maintenance of that power. If he abandons this pursuit over ethical concerns, he does not make the world a more peaceful place. He only hands the reins to whomever seems fit to take them up, and wicked men are never slow to accept such a precious gift. But Rocot was hardly the last practitioner of realpolitik either. There have been many, and hardly a successful statesman has not practiced it to some degree in the course of his career, especially those in foreign policy. World War II provides a number of stunning examples. For all of Adolf Hitler's entirely reasonable apprehension about communism, he did enter into a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin as the conflict was heating up. There was actually a good deal of trade between the two countries no shortage of which were goods and materials with unambiguous military purposes. Try to imagine a world in which Stalin and Hitler were allies at the end of the war's conclusion, and you get an idea of the tremendous potential of realpolitik in foreign affairs. As you may have heard, things turned out rather differently, but not on account of any love for the Jewish people on Stalin's part, nor was it primarily an ethnic animus of Aryan versus Slav. I, and no shortage of others, suspect that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was more sympathetic to communism than he may have let on, but making an ally of the Soviet Union was by no means uncontroversial in the United States at the time, and the terms of that alliance were arguably more generous than those now offered to Ukraine. Roosevelt's famous line of the man that became Uncle Joe, that he's an SOB but he's our SOB, is realpolitik distilled. The details of all this are fascinating, but beyond the scope of our task for today, I encourage the listener to check out a book titled Stalin's War by Sean McMeekin. The audiobook version, I can attest, is well-produced. If you have a library card, you may be able to get it for free using the Libby app on your smartphone. 
Henry Kissinger is in no small part the inspiration for this production. Your humble correspondent read three books of his in recent years, two of which tremendously influenced my thinking. On China and World Order are the titles of greatest interest, but his most recent book, Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy, is far from worthless. Kissinger's role in American foreign policy can hardly be overstated. In our view, that is hardly a reason to hold a man in high esteem, but given the current state of world affairs, we think it important to address his dealings with China and the Soviet Union during the Nixon administration. As National Security Advisor to Richard Nixon, Kissinger was involved in establishing back-channel communications between the United States and a number of other countries around the world, not least of all Russia and China, who, despite their both being communists, were at that time not on the best of terms. Nixon and Kissinger aimed to keep it that way and established a staple of American foreign policy which would last all the way up until the presidency of Joseph R. Biden. The idea was, in summary, never to let the Soviet Union and China develop closer ties to one another than either had with the United States. This was no small task, given that the United States, and Nixon in particular, were no fans of communism. Relations between the United States and the Soviet Union were described as a Cold War, and Chiang Kai-shek still held power in Taiwan. Whatever the difficulty, Nixon viewed this as being vital to world order. If the Soviet Union and China allied themselves against the United States, nuclear war was perhaps the best-case scenario, with global communism coming in a close second. Kissinger made two trips to China in 1971, paving the way for Richard Nixon to travel there and shake hands with Mao Zedong. Kissinger helped shape the policy known as strategic ambiguity on the Taiwan question, in which the United States agrees that there is only one China, that Taiwan is a part of China, and that the United States will provide Taiwan with what it needs to defend itself. The ambiguities here are that there then remained, and in ever smaller circles still remains, a dispute over who is the legitimate government of that one single China, the regime in Beijing or the regime in Taipei. Consequently, there is ambiguity over just whom Taiwan would be defending itself against if not its belligerent communist neighbor and one-time civil war opponent, as well as over whether the policy of the United States is merely to be an arms dealer to the Taiwan government or to actually intervene with troops in the event of force reunification. The United States officially opposes force reunification, as well as a formal declaration of independence by the Taiwan government in keeping with the one-China policy. But you may have heard in recent headlines... Within the last couple of years, that is. Joseph Biden broke the strategic ambiguity. He now says, of course we're going to go to war with China if they do anything we don't like in Taiwan. Because, you know, why fight one war when you can fight two, you know? Imperfect though it may be, this has kept the peace in the region for more than 50 years. It led to what has become known as the opening of China, which, though it has gotten out of hand since the Clinton administration and China's entry into the World Trade Organization, or WTO, did promote substantial reforms in China and, more importantly, accomplished the Nixon strategy of keeping the Soviet Union and China from allying against the United States. So, whatever you think of world affairs today, it is difficult to imagine them having turned out any better has such an alliance been formed. Realpolitik for the win. This brings us to the current year, in which Vladimir Putin stands out as a master of the art. Though you might not realize this if you were watching CNN. Putin's move in Ukraine is largely touted in Western media as one of history's great military blunders. If you believe the line that he thought Kiev would fall on a weekend, it makes sense to reach this conclusion, unless you think he had a plan B. Ukraine is important to the Russian Federation, but the grander prize is the world order. 
Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, America has enjoyed a nearly unchallenged global hegemony. America's exorbitant privilege of issuing the world reserve currency was once the consequence of her economic and military might, which were themselves a consequence of the strength, intelligence, and virtue of her citizenry. Today, it is quite the opposite. Having forfeited her other virtues to vice, greed, and immigration, America's economic and military power, what little of them remain, are consequences of her exorbitant monetary privilege rather than its causes. What was once acquired through brains and brawn is now sustained by borrowing, bribing, printing, and lending. Here at Surreal Politics, it would be safe to say that we have mixed feelings on the subject of usury. And our instincts are pro-American. But even we can see that this is getting pretty ridiculous. And given this, it is obvious and by no means unreasonable that others find it absolutely intolerable. Given American belligerence towards the Russian Federation, and in particular regarding its reckless use of economic sanctions, one must consider the possibility that Putin's target in Ukraine is actually the U.S. dollar. Putin had to have some idea that the United States would have something to say about his military operation. He may have over or underestimated that response, but he had to have considered it. If he bowls over Ukraine in a weekend, he gets a country. Nice prize. Now that he finds himself in a proxy war with the United States, he could very well end up with something altogether more valuable. The casual news consumer is by now well aware that the Nixon-Kissinger strategy is out the window. Russia and China now have a no-limits partnership, as they call it, at least on paper. While we here at Surreal Politiques remain skeptical of China's affections for the Russian Federation, what remains beyond dispute is that the Biden administration is making that alliance the only reasonable thing for Vladimir Putin to do. As China eyes Taiwan and its near monopoly on advanced semiconductors, America, fresh off a double-decade quagmire in Afghanistan, is emptying her military stockpiles and treasury into the pockets of a Jewish comedian whose comparison to Winston Churchill makes the old Uncle Joe line look sensible by comparison. The idea behind economic sanctions is to isolate an opponent and to deprive them of resources in order to alter their behavior. That works fairly well if the whole world would rather do business with you than the people you're isolating. But the more people you sanction, the fewer use your currency. When the country you sanction the most happens to be the largest on Earth by territory and a leading energy exporter and is neighbored and allied with a country of 1.4 billion people who you outsource your entire supply chain to, it is you who ends up isolated. Now, we neither speak Russian nor spend a great deal of time at the Kremlin, so we cannot know the inner thoughts of Vladimir Putin. All we can say with confidence is that he has handled himself better than Joe Biden thus far, while acknowledging that this is no high bar to set. With that in mind, let us turn our focus to domestic politics, and in that vein, let us examine modern American conservatism, which is what tends to pass for right-wing in our setting. It would be beyond the scope of our purpose today to give a thorough exploration of what this variety of conservatism is, in no small part because it is so ill-defined and factually divided that any definition offered under book length would credibly be accused of oversimplification. What we can say about it as a general matter, though, will suffice, specifically that conservatives are enamored with various supposed principles over which they are willing to forfeit power to anti-conservative factions of the Republican Party and ultimately to Democrats. In so doing, the principles over which they are forfeiting power are not carried into public policy, and the policies that are implemented actually wage war against those principles. 
Hence, the purported defense of principles which prompted the forfeiture is nothing of the sort. It is masochistic ritual sacrifice born of ideological mysticism. Moreover, conservatives' opponents use the power they wield to alter the rules of the system in order to prevent conservatives from returning to power in the future. This reduces the likelihood of those principles ever being carried into execution, ultimately to zero. This is foreseeable to these conservatives and thus further illustrates our point of the mysticism involved. Notable examples of this in action at the time of this writing include, but are not limited to, universal mail-in voting, the abolition of voter signature verification, resistance to voter ID laws, open primaries, and ranked choice voting. Efforts to further this agenda include the abolition of the Senate filibuster, laws and other coercive targeting of so-called hate speech and disinformation, voting rights amnesty and citizenship for illegal immigrants. Permissive legal immigration, reduction of the voting age, packing the Supreme Court, and the addition of D.C. and Puerto Rico as states with representation in the Senate and Electoral College, to name just a few. It is noteworthy that we see the abolition of anti-fraud measures as a tactic of the Democrat Party, who are never short of accusations against their political opponents. The observable reality is that while Democrats are quick to call Republicans fascists and tyrants and crooks, they seem altogether confident that voter fraud will favor their party quite uniformly, otherwise they would be trying to stamp it out with all the vigor of their hostility towards Russia. Just like their lesser-dressed counterparts in the riots calling to defund the police, Democrats are rather straightforwardly embracing their role as the criminal party, and letting them hold power in the name of constitutional government is a rather comical idea, we think it's safe to say. Cumulatively. These threaten to cement a permanent majority for the Democrat Party in Washington. That might sound good to you if you're a Democrat, but if you understand anything about economics or genetics, you definitely don't fit that description. For those of us who do understand these things, it is clear that catastrophe will doubtless follow such a shift in the balance of power. Conservative or not, unless you are a criminal or among a small number of elites, a permanent Democrat majority is a threat to your interests which you would be a fool to abide. Now, one should hope it would go without saying that morals are not irrelevant. Ideology has its place in politics and in society more broadly. This we do not dispute. We are not Nietzschean amoralists. We have opinions about right and wrong, and we will not make much effort to disguise them as the show moves forward. In fact, we are affirmatively taking the position that the first principle of any moral system ought to be that it has an obligation not to let itself be destroyed, and that, should such destruction ensue, The fact of its destruction is evidence enough of its being a false morality. Conservatives, by contrast, have famously adopted a masochistic strategy they call losing with dignity, in which they are routinely deprived of any claim to anything resembling dignity and are more accurately humiliated, slandered, abused, and persecuted. Their espoused morals and principles are a variety of abstraction, a purely theoretical exercise considered exempt from practical experience. Human beings do not live in abstractions. They do not exist in theories. They exist in an earthly realm under which the laws of physics are laws in the truest sense. One cannot break such laws. They can only break themselves upon them. When ideology ceases to correspond to reality, its adherents and those under their sway can only be made to suffer and or perish, ground up in the vicissitudes of an unforgiving and decidedly non-ideological world. Thus, those who advance these schemes are a sort of aggressor. Like a drug addict, they indulge themselves in sensations they find pleasurable and externalize the cost of this indulgence to the detriment of others. This frivolous and ultimately doomed attempt to organize one's affairs according to abstract theory is what we at Surreal Politiques view as condemnable ideological mysticism.
Factions which could be described as being to the right of conservatism, we'll call them nationalists, are in this respect not much better. While they mock conservatives with no shortage of legitimacy, they tend to fall into the same pattern of behavior which in their terminology has become known as purity spiraling. In this spiral, factions, groups, media personalities, organizers, and individuals try to out-radical one another through exclusion. They engage in the same sort of ritual purges that conservatives have become famous for over the years. In their efforts to impose and maintain ideological discipline and not without consequence revenue streams, they are reduced to radicalized echo chambers. Within these echo chambers, social status is conferred by familiarity with and adherence to doctrinaire ideological program statements or proximity to prevalent personalities. The maintenance of this social status becomes the purpose of political activity to the exclusion of realistic paths to power. Through such a process, they are guaranteed little more than struggle, and whatever this may do to stoically improve and strengthen the character of its adherents, it renders certain that they will not achieve their purported aims. This, too, is a form of ritual sacrifice born of ideological mysticism. With so much in common between them, it almost seems odd that conservatives and nationalists are so frequently in conflict, doesn't it? I mean, sure, the conservatives have largely internalized the criticisms of the left and, on account of this, flamboyantly attempt to outdo the opposition party in feigning ignorance of genetics and demographic reality. Sure, the nationalists have done precisely the opposite and have proudly worn the badges affixed to them by Democrat strategists. But while they retreat to their respective corners and lob internecine missiles at one another, each equally certain that total right-wing victory lies just over the bodies of the rival faction, Democrats loot and burn and sexually mutilate children with state sponsorship and mass media approbation. According to what moral philosophy is this behavior praiseworthy? Of this, all we can say with certainty is not ours. With less certainty, we might make a substantially educated guess, having read their books, that neither William F. Buckley nor Adolf Hitler would condone it any more than we do. This phenomenon is all the more bizarre on account of the American right's decidedly non-ideological approach to public policy, comparative to their left-wing counterparts, that is. For all the less hysteria, no elected Republican has ever proposed a constitutional amendment to institute a Christian theocracy or a white ethnostate. While Republicans can credibly be accused of having some dissonance between the fiscal discipline of their rhetoric when out of power and their spending habits when in power, they at least consider math and economic laws while formulating policy, even if they do so poorly. They might not articulate the determinative nature of genetics and demographics, but they at least know there are two sexes and that aptitude is not by nature distributed evenly among a diverse population. Their dogmatic nonsense is limited almost exclusively to matters of strategic importance. The rest of the time, they are fairly hard-nosed realists. This, it may go without saying, is the polar opposite of the left, as manifested in the apparatus of the Democrat Party. This is where the surreal part of our name comes into play. Democrat policy is ideology taken to the utmost cartoonish heights of delusion. They are often incredibly accused of being a thinly-veiled fundamentalist religion— which can only harm the reputation of death cults that worship space aliens and pray for the end of time. They have set themselves to the task of inverting all values and debasing language to the point that it becomes incapable of conveying meaning or sustaining thought. From the ritual child sacrifice they affectionately call abortion to the Z-Zer designer pronouns, Democrats have declared that reality itself is an oppressive patriarchal relic of white supremacy and waged war against it in the name of anti-fascism. They brag about their supposed atheism 
and tell us that we must no less repent for our sins lest we be punished by the one true God whose holy name is climate. Hurricanes, floods, droughts, and fires are not weather, they are climate, and climate is punishment for environmental racism. We can be cleansed of our sins by killing the unborn, by taking circumcision to the ultimate absurd extreme of vaginoplasty, by rioting, by waging war against Christian nations. But since the nature of all animal life, including our own, is to emit carbon into the atmosphere through respiration, our very breath is sin, and thus our need to repent continues in perpetuity. Yet, for all this voluntary adoption of schizophrenic symptoms, the Democrats never allow ideology to stand in the way of power, do they? No later than with the publication of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, another excellent read, Democrats have openly declared themselves to be moral relativists and deemed no act done in pursuit of power to be beneath the dignity of a teammate. Media outlets as prominent as the New York Times and CNN have forfeited their reputations to partisan interests, manufacturing scandals against Republicans while declaring any criticism of the Democrats to be Russian disinformation. When caught in their lies, they simply say, whoops, and continue polishing their Pulitzers as if it had never happened. Their readers and viewers, those who remain anyway, don't seem to mind. They have accepted that accurate descriptions of real events are not the purpose of their media consumption. It is simply programming. Being ill-informed is a small price to pay for the abolition of economic laws and biology, after all. They want to know what you think, as opposed to what is happening, and this is a service these outlets are happy to provide. So they live in a surreal dream world akin to the first version of The Matrix, an egalitarian utopia in which happiness and comfort are expected as guarantees. Any disruption to this vision of things is viewed as a territorial invasion by a foreign military, and all standards of conduct are set aside as occurs in any other war zone. Racial egalitarianism gives way to anti-white race hate. Gender equality gives way to the abolition of masculinity. Anti-capitalism gives way to dictatorial rule by bankers. Freedom of speech gives way to the promotion of pornography and the punishment of coherent anthropology. At least on the part of the leaders, this is far from delusional. The followers might be true believers, but for the leaders it is a cold, calculating, merciless application of precisely the same facts they demand not be spoken aloud. The left, to put it more succinctly, are masters of realpolitik. They get what they want, and they get it at our expense. Ethics play no role in the calculation, except to the extent they must be faked for appearances in service to the acquisition and maintenance of power. And so we are met with this peculiar circumstance. The right in its policy application is decidedly well-grounded in reality, but departs on strategic matters to pursue ideological moral claims. The left is pursuing a policy agenda that borders on supernatural, but make and act on accurate assessments of their environment in strategic matters. The result is leftist hegemony and catastrophic policies that do not correspond to reality, thus requiring ever-increasing levels of coercion just to maintain the spectacle. The principles the right forfeits power to defend are not defended at all, and mankind's devolution to barbarism is all but a foregone conclusion. We here at Surreal Politiques do not consider this an acceptable trade-off. Built into our assumptions thus far is a conception of a political right and a political left. This may not seem obvious to the uninitiated, and even to those immersed in politics, these terms do not always convey identical meaning to all who hear them, so it may be prudent that we say something about this briefly. We prefer the terms right and left to what are sometimes considered more fashionable terms, such as liberal versus conservative or conservative versus progressive. 
For one, we have a rather specific thing in mind when we discuss conservatives, and they are by no means the end-all be-all of what it means to be right-wing. Notably, we earlier mentioned some contention between conservatives and those we have termed nationalists, though we will acknowledge here that these factions could easily make use of one of Kamala Harris's beloved Venn diagrams. The conception of a political paradigm in which conservatives make up the rightmost edge is not an accurate description of reality. Mitch McConnell might prefer you to think so, almost as much as he would like you to think he is himself a conservative. More to the point, those most invested in this perception are anything but conservative. They are radical ideologues who, not without justification, view conservatives as weak opposition, and one can hardly blame them for trying to pick a weak opponent when the opportunity is presented to them. Describing the American left as liberal is part of their quite familiar assault on language and its capacity to facilitate thought. We consider this too obvious to require much explanation, but it may suffice to say that the party aiming to tax the weather, censor political opposition, and disarm the population is liberal with nothing but other people's money. And as we have established, there is nothing liberal about the means for collecting those resources. Progressivism emerged not in contrast to conservatism, but to revolution. It was a description not of ends, but of means. While revolutionaries sought to impose Marxism on population by force of arms, progressives sought to do so through ostensibly lawful means, gradual change, and arguably a variety of real politique. To formulate our conception of politics with conservatives on one side and progressives on the other is to ignore the armed men waiting to gun us down, and this we consider imprudent in the extreme. Left and right can be credibly accused of imprecision. At different times and in different places, one policy idea or another might have been espoused by those described as left or right wing, and at another time, that same position might be held by those perceived as at the opposite end of this spectrum. Here at Surreal Politiques, we consider this more feature than bug. Left and right do not describe doctrinaire ideological program statements, but tendencies. The terms you may have heard stem from the time of the French Revolution. In a dispute over the powers of the king, those favoring a powerful monarch just so happened to find themselves directionally to the king's right, and those favoring more restraints on these powers found themselves directionally to his left. From here derives the left's association with liberalism, though the most cursory study of the French Revolution will disabuse you of the notion far more thoroughly than any understanding of American politics. The tendency emerges, however, all throughout time and space wherever human endeavors are to be found. On the right, there is a healthy acceptance of a social order they feel comfortable describing as natural, however much maintenance it may require, and on the left, a disdain and drive to destroy it with varying degrees of speed and violence. The overlaps in policy positions over time and space do not diminish the usefulness of this conception, mainly because their purposes are different. The best example is in economics. The popular idea today that the right is for economic freedom and the left is for economic control has little basis in history. The left wants to upend the economic order and seeks control over the economy for this purpose. The right exercises control over the economy to stabilize the economic order, and at different times this has required varying levels of coercion. Their aims could not be more different, whatever the tools in their toolbox. Also built into our assumptions is something we view as a truism, but acknowledge is not universally accepted. In both law and fact, America has a two-party political system. There is a left-wing party called the Democrat Party and a wholly inadequate right-wing party called the Republican Party. To stop the left-wing party from ruining the country and taking the rest of mankind down with it, the right-wing party must hold power, even if only to keep the left-wing party out of power. 
To be sure, it would be preferable for the right-wing party to actually do something meaningful, but for them to do nothing is preferable to Democrat rule. So we must here say something about political parties as a general matter. In parliamentary governments, there can be such a thing known as independent parties. This is because there is proportional representation in the legislature, and the members of that legislature elect the executive. In such a government, when, say, 5% of the country votes for the independent party, the party gets 5% of the seats and can enter into a coalition government to wield power. This power can be substantial since it may, on a whim, collapse the government or at least obstruct the larger coalition partner. America does not have a parliamentary government. In America, our Constitution recognized the winner-take-all model from the moment it replaced the Articles of Confederation, which itself was not parliamentary. A winner-take-all model is inescapably a two-party system. You get fewer votes than the other guy, you lose 100%. You don't get 49% of the power. There is one winner and one loser. It is a zero-sum game with two opposing teams. In such a system, groups bearing the title of independent political parties are to be understood as social clubs, interest groups, debating societies, and more generally as corporate vehicles that are parties in name only, which we will henceforth call PINOs, P-I-N-O's. They may do good things or they may do bad things, but in this they are no different from any other corporate shell formed with all the difficulty of filling out an online application and paying a nominal sum to a local registrar. To the extent they engage in political activity, their impact on the political success of one party or the other determines whether they are Republicans or Democrats. They fall into one of these two categories whether or not they choose to admit or like this fact. This designation need not be static for such a group any more than it need be for any individual voter, but one might expect patterns to emerge which cause the designation to remain perceptually stubborn. In a recent guest appearance, someone told you humble correspondent that there is nothing sacrosanct about the Republican Party. To this we respond by design, of course. A two-party system cannot have anything sacrosanct about either party. If there is a permanent two-party structure in place, which there is, then necessarily the policies espoused by the parties will change as the sands flow through the hourglass. People and ideas come and go. All that remains are the levers. It is red team, blue team. If the Democrat Party were tomorrow cleared of all the crooks and degenerates, we might just as easily adhere to that corporate shell instead of the other. The party is the legal mechanism provided by the state for political activity. It has no principles, no inherent moral or spiritual claim to legitimacy of its own. It is a vessel filled with whatever human material happens to be controlling the levers. It has no will save for that of its members. Those who do not like how this will is exercised have two options. They can either try to influence the party by being a part of it, or they can try to defeat it by being part of the other party. Whether they do this as committeemen, or as social media influencers, or as candidates for office, or as armed revolutionaries, they no less participate on one side or the other. It is inescapable. Attempts to operate outside of this paradigm can only result in miscalculation because the fact of their place within it is preordained outside of their capacity to decide. To put it another way, a right-wing party that holds itself in opposition to the Republican Party is functioning as a Democrat Party proxy, whatever their intent, and their failure, willing or unwilling, to understand this can only result in their failure to advance the right-wing interests for which they purport to exist. The implication of the above is that nationalists must come to grips with the mechanics of partisan politics and the Republican Party in particular. That is, if they hope to defeat leftist hegemony and the predictably catastrophic outcomes it means to impose through engineered demographic change. There are alternatives to this, but they do not involve the salvation of our people. 
that is going to involve conservatives being in charge when they prevail in primary elections and other intraparty contests, which a reasonable observer ought to expect them to do until nationalists earn their position within the party. To earn that seat at the table will require more effort and more prudence than nationalists have thus far proven willing or capable of summoning, sad to say. Complaining that one's faction has not dominated a country after five years of failed effort and then abandoning the project and calling for the destruction of the system can hardly be called an exercise in realpolitik. Our friends would do well to take a page from Mr. Rocot. Since realpolitik is primarily concerned with the attainment of ends, our task necessarily begins with the defining of these aims. Above, we have said, that nationalists will have to earn their seat at the table of Republican Party politics. But as a thought exercise, let us say our aim is total right-wing victory. How do we achieve total right-wing victory in the context of realpolitik? Well, the goal is too ill-defined. One cannot achieve concrete attainable ends if one cannot define them. Moreover, its exceedingly broad implications are not apt for the alignment of otherwise dissimilar interests which comprise our most notable examples of realpolitik. I can think of two far better examples with relatively recent success stories, the Tea Party and the Right to Life movement. Now, to be sure, some people who hear the sound of my voice will consider this quite tame. We've been talking about Putin and Machiavelli, and it may seem like a change of subject to downshift to people in tricorn hats trying to save babies. But our entire political frame of reference today is shaped by these two movements and in ways that are rarely so obvious as the overturn of Roe v. Wade. To do truly exciting things in politics requires power, and these movements are a great study in its acquisition and application. Consequently, they will be due for more thorough examination in future episodes, but I will present brief summaries here today as a crash course. Depending on who you speak to within the vast array of interests that make up the Right to Life movement, they might have any number of ultimate aims. On the fringes, some want to go as far as banning birth control. Some just thought abortion after 15 weeks was a barbaric procedure and thought that there ought to be more reasonable restrictions at a local level. But they all set their sights on the overturn of the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade. This was their North Star, if you will. I imagine most of you already know that this was the Supreme Court precedent that purported to establish a constitutional right to abortion. If you want to learn more about the story of the case, I would encourage you to check out a book titled The Family Row by Joshua Prager. There is an audiobook version that is reasonably well produced with a female narrator, which you can obtain for free using the Libby app for your smartphone using a public library card if your library happens to have it. The decision overturning Roe v. Wade was in a case titled Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, and that was an excellent decision to read if you go look for the, uh, the ruling decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. Long story short, Roe v. Wade was this really bizarre fiction. The case was brought pseudonymously, ostensibly to protect the identity of a woman named Norma McCorvey, whose life was just a complete disaster. She had already given birth twice, and the third time she got pregnant, her friends told her she should falsely claim to have been raped by a bunch of black men because at the time abortion was illegal in Texas. This did not have the desired effect, and through a convoluted process, she ended up introduced to some lawyers who had already had a legal strategy for bringing abortion to the Supreme Court. Here we find the first politically interesting thing in this story. These were activist lawyers looking for a client to accomplish a political goal. Norma McCorvey wasn't a politically interested person. She was just a train wreck of a woman who thought with some justification that she was doing the world a disservice by reproducing. Our legal system is not supposed to be a political instrument, but because it has the power to achieve political goals, it is weaponized for precisely this purpose. 
So the case is based on a lie. There is no constitutional right to abortion. Nobody ever believed there actually was one. It was a frivolous legal argument seeking politically sympathetic judges. The woman wasn't raped, her name wasn't Jane Roe, and she didn't sue the government. Activists did. She actually never even showed up to any of these hearings. She never even got the abortion. She gave birth to the child and put it up for adoption. She later became a pro-life activist, and shortly before her death in 2017, she told a documentary film crew that she was paid for the activism and never actually supported the uh, right-to-life movement. Everything about the story is fake. I only tell you the story because overturning the case made such a great target for the alignment of diverse interests, and that is a key feature of Realpolitik. You didn't have to care about abortion to think that Roe v. Wade should be overturned. It was perfectly sufficient if you cared about the truth or about the law. Being on the side of the truth and of the law while your opponent is actively against these things is very persuasive. I imagine some of you have heard of a group called the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society is not primarily a right-to-life group. It is primarily not a Christian group. It's a bunch of lawyers. But on the basis of their devotion to the rule of law, the overturn of Roe v. Wade was a vocal part of their advocacy. When Donald Trump ran for president, he pledged only to nominate Supreme Court justices they approved of. Now, wouldn't you like to wield that kind of power? It doesn't hurt to have God on your side, either. I'm not trying to make this show about me, but I'll tell you a little personal detail because I think it helps illustrate this broader point. I have very strong opinions about abortion for deeply personal reasons, but it has never been a religious thing for me. I always thought that making it a religious issue was actually very bad politics. It would be fair to say my views on religion are more complex than my views on abortion, so it's not by any means a natural fit to get me in league with religious groups. But the Christian groups are the most active right-to-lifers, and these people really earned my admiration over the years. When I first started in politics and media, I openly marketed myself as an atheist, and I used to mock religion. I don't do that anymore for a variety of reasons, but high on that list is because the Christian right-to-life groups influenced me during the course of our interests being aligned. When I heard that Roe v. Wade had been overturned, I was so overwhelmed with emotion I barely knew what to do with myself. My first thought was to drop to my knees and thank God, and I had this moment of panic over that impulse. This was not something your humble correspondent did. It was not part of my identity. So I had this second thought that was like, if you pray to God, God will take that as mockery, and then you'll need to ask forgiveness, which will cause the same problem. And if you're listening to this and it sounds crazy, imagine it's going on in your own head and you feel like you have no control over it. These were intrusive thoughts that I could not rid myself of. So I dropped to my knees, I clasped my hands, and whispered, thank you, God. Then I got back up and tried to put the idea out of my head. As you may have gathered, that still has not happened many months later. I don't imagine I'm the only one with a similar story to tell, either. Christians set their sights on Roe v. Wade, and they got me to my knees. They could not have done that by a straightforward attempt at conversion. They wielded influence through aligned interests. And while I hope that example was vivid to illustrate the point, it was hardly the most powerful impact they had. How many Republican candidates for office do you know who openly advocate for free abortion on demand without restriction or apology? Probably zero. The whole time these activists were out doing their marches and their silent prayer sessions and all of these flamboyant public displays, they were also showing up at Republican Party meetings and events, becoming committee members, setting up super PACs and 501c organizations, recruiting and screening candidates. They did it all. 
Before you can overturn a Supreme Court decision, you've got to get a majority on that court. And before you can do that, you've got to have at least 50 senators and a president who agree with you. And you've got to have that infrastructure in place over the course of many years to change the court's makeup. The Christians, their timeline is eternity, right? And so if it takes some time, it takes some time, right? Donald Trump used to be for abortion, and I think his views have sincerely changed over the years, but whatever his true thoughts, he knew that the Christian right-to-life groups were an important constituency in securing the Republican nomination for President of the United States. So he stated matter-of-factly that of course his justices would overturn Roe v. Wade, obviously, as if that was not controversial. And for the right-to-life groups who had spent 50 years seeking this goal, that was almost all they needed to hear. They were willing to overlook the inconsistencies in his views, the divorces, the affairs, the porn stars, the acceptance of gay marriage, the access Hollywood tape, everything. The left-wing media, oh, they didn't like that one bit, did they, huh? Suddenly, they found sexual morality for the limited purpose of criticizing the religious groups as hypocrites for supporting Donald Trump. They wanted so desperately for these groups to forfeit an imminent political victory over some abstract principle But these people had worked too hard for too long to let this go. It shouldn't have come as a shock to me that Roe v. Wade had been overturned. I almost cried when Amy Coney Barrett was sworn in because I knew we at least then had the math on our side. But I've been disappointed so many times in politics that I wasn't about to consider it a done deal. Even when I heard that the decision had been leaked, that wasn't the moment that I fell to my knees. I was hopeful more than at any other time in my life. But whoever leaked that thing obviously wanted to influence the outcome, and I thought they might succeed. Maybe the most beautiful thing I ever saw on television was the sight of young women celebrating the decision outside of the Supreme Court. It stood in sharp contrast to the angry feminists who were not nearly so attractive, were they? It took 50 years to overturn Roe and not 50 years of silent prayer or simply showing up on election day. It took a lot of hard work and we should not forget that these people were persecuted. A lot of people on the right get discouraged because they see themselves and their associates facing down the system and meeting undesirable outcomes, to put it mildly. They get branded terrorists, sabotaged, imprisoned and sued and people lose hope. But not the right to lifers. Their Bible tells them they're going to be persecuted. It's part of the plan. You might recall a few very highly publicized stories of guys who either killed abortionists or torched or vandalized clinics. There were many more cases of threats, of course. Democrats tried to use these things to paint the whole movement that way, which may sound familiar to you in other contexts if you pay any attention to the news. The people from live action who published the videos of Planned Parenthood ghouls selling baby parts, they got sued, they got prosecuted. They did not miss a beat. They never stopped. Even Supreme Court justices aren't safe from the malice of the abortion ghouls. Who can forget the absurd spectacle they made of Brett Kavanaugh's nomination? Some maniac showed up at his house with a gun to kill him while that decision was in limbo, you might recall. And to this day, the Biden Justice Department will not remove those maniacs from their front yards despite a federal law that explicitly makes it illegal to protest a judge with the intent of influencing a decision. What do you think it would happen if there were right-wingers out there? That's a cliche. We, we shouldn't even do that on this show. It's, 
cheap, cheap, cheap airtime. Just as importantly, the pro-life movement did not simply disband when they achieved the goal that had become their central organizing principle. Now that Roe has been overturned, a new phase begins. Saving the unborn is the mission now. Whether that means lobbying for state and local laws or seeking a personhood amendment to the Constitution, I imagine there are differences of opinion on that. And they won't have nearly the coalition-building power that overturning Roe did. But there's a lot that we can learn from the right-to-life movement, and I will return to this subject in future episodes. A shorter-term and closely related study can be found in the Tea Party movement. I was involved in a Tea Party movement back in its heyday, and you would not be listening to the sound of my voice right now had I not. And had I not been trying to out-radical everybody there, you might be seeing me on TV or in the halls of Congress. You've got to have a pretty strict definition of success to say that those people were not successful. And do you know what made the Tea Party successful? It was three words. Hands-off health care. That catchphrase was something only a Democrat could hate. For the younger members of our audience, the Tea Party movement emerged after the election of Barack Obama. If they were still teaching American history when you were propagandized as a child, you may have heard something about something called the Boston Tea Party, in which a tax on tea was protested by the colonial subjects by throwing tea off the side of a boat and into the harbor. Many credit CNBC host Rick Santelli with launching the movement through an on-air rant largely about taxes and fueled in no small part by the Bush administration's bank bailouts. But with a Democrat Congress and a Democrat president who had advocated single-payer proposing an overhaul of the healthcare system, this became the slogan everybody rallied around. Sure, people had other issues. Sure, there were partisan overtones to the whole thing. But there were professional political strategists and organizers involved, and they made a point to stay on message. Hands-off healthcare was the rallying point that nobody in the group disagreed about, and the rest was just stuff to debate over beers, of which there were many. For the people who weren't there, it's easy to get the idea that the Republican Party always embraced the Tea Party, but that was not the case at all when this happened. The people in charge of the party were afraid that the crazies were going to come out of the woodwork and cost them elections, and there was no shortage of attempts to start an actual Tea Party political party. I'm not going to research the subject right now, but I'm pretty sure there are actually lawsuits over the name. In my area, in Long Island, there were several Tea Party groups. The 912 Project and the Campaign for Liberty stand out in my mind as among the smaller groups, but the biggest group was the Conservative Society for Action, or CSA. It was run by a guy named Stephen Flanagan, and that guy knew what he was doing. He was a powerful speaker and a competent leader and strategist. He knew that if you were going to go after every right-wing talking point, you're going to fracture your coalition. He didn't deny the right to lifers or Second Amendment groups or anybody else a chance to speak at meetings. He didn't police people's signs at rallies. But he told everybody that Obamacare was just a foot in the door for single-payer, and that single-payer was the crown jewel of socialism. So if the group wanted to save the country from communism, they were going to have to stay on message. And until the midterms came around in 2010... He tried to avoid the appearance of being a partisan organization. Hands off healthcare, hands off healthcare, it worked. When the midterm primaries came around, there was some fracturing, necessarily. Perhaps most notably to this audience, though not in the grand scheme of things, I more or less got ran out of the groups for running as a libertarian and being hostile to the GOP. More relevant to our story, though, is that people were backing other Republican candidates, and at some point things got pretty nasty, as these things tend to do. There were the so-called dark horse candidates, regular people who wanted to run for office and take their country back. These were obviously opposed by party establishment types, and there were differences of opinion on how to handle that, to say the least of it. 
In the U.S. House district I ran as a libertarian in, the guy who won the primary was no Tea Party favorite, but others did win their primaries. So Steve Flanagan gave a real barn burner of a speech at one of the meetings, and he said that if they didn't want all the effort they put in over the last couple of years to be wasted, they had no choice but to back whoever won their primaries. If you don't want to give this one or that one your time or your money, fine, but the organization was not going to help you oppose them because that will help the Democrats, and the Democrats are the source of this health care bill that we're trying to defeat. And the Republican Party won a historic victory that year. Obama himself called it a shellacking. More to the point, the Tea Party proved their worth to the Republican Party. In the primaries, they won some, they lost some. The Tea Party favorites lost a few general elections, they won a few. Some of them proved the establishment right by being crackpots, others are still serving today. But while you don't hear about the Tea Party much anymore, you do hear about the people who came to power during it from time to time, Rand Paul among them. What gets less attention, necessarily, is people who started all manner of political careers during that time, or people who became committee members for the GOP. I haven't checked in recent years, but I'm willing to bet I got drunk with a lot of guys still serving in the Republican Party of Suffolk County, New York. Others are working as professional campaign strategists and with various media outfits and whatnot like that. But observe the continuum here. Hands-off healthcare is the narrow unifying point over which there is no disagreement. There is a disagreement when the primaries come around and you deal with your disagreements in the primary process. Effort has been invested up until that date, and if you don't want your effort wasted, help the party. The party wins, you get a job and a business. By contrast, I ran a write-in campaign as a Libertarian Party candidate, and I was in the habit of attacking Republicans on every stupid Libertarian sticking point like legalizing drugs. The Republican in my district lost by fewer votes than I got, and the Tea Party groups understandably blamed me for costing the Republicans a seat in the House. I'd like to think I've done some good things since then, but it's reasonable to think I might have had a better impact on things if I wasn't trying to out-radical everybody by proposing constitutional amendments and refusing to play ball. There's a lot of Trump guys in the GOP right now. I can't say how many of them got their start with the Tea Party, but I imagine many did. Wherever they started, they're there now. Trump's prospects are uncertain, but these guys are in there doing their jobs, climbing the ladders. They didn't do this without resistance. The Bush-Romney-McCain crowd, they held power in the GOP, and they did not want to be dislodged. They viciously resisted Trump's movement. They won some, they lost some. Them's the breaks. But I imagine Ludwig von Rochow would envy the ease with which they found their influence. There's a really great scene from the HBO original series, Game of Thrones. I'm tempted to play the audio, but I'm trying to be very cautious with intellectual property in this production. So I'll tell you, the video is on YouTube with the title, Tyrion and Varys Discuss Power, and then I'll recite the idea here. Varys, the eunuch, poses to Tyrion, the dwarf, a riddle. Power is a curious thing, my lord. Are you fond of riddles? Why, am I about to hear one? Three great men sit in a room, a king, a priest, and a rich man. Between them stands a common sellsword, which is, throughout the show, you realize the sellsword is as it sounds. He's an assassin. Each great man bids the sellsword kill the other two. Who lives, who dies? Tyrion says, depends on the sellsword. Does it? He has not the crown, no gold, no favor with the gods. Well, he's got the sword. He has the power of life and death, of course. But if it is swordsmen who rule, why do we pretend kings hold all the power? When Ned Stark lost his head, who was truly responsible? Joffrey, the executioner, or something else? I've decided I don't like riddles. 
Power resides where men believe it resides. It's a trick, a shadow on the wall, and a very small man can cast a very large shadow. Ideas are cool, but power is cooler. Ideology is impotent without power, and the most ideological people in this country know this all too well. I am sick and tired of getting kicked around by left-wing maniacs who would burn this country for a chance to rule the ashes. More than this, I am sick of watching that happen to people far less deserving of it than your humble correspondent. I dread their vision for this world. It is a Hobbesian hellscape read in tooth, claw, and ideology. It is a world in which you don't know what the law is, or who is in charge, or what is socially acceptable because words have no meaning and thought is impossible. The prudent man, ideologue or no, must view this as an unacceptable political framework. To prevent it, he must understand and engage with the world as it is and on the terms set by those who came before him. Only in this way can he alter those terms. If he rejects the rules of the game, he does not win by creative means, he forfeits. So before we go, I should say something about political violence, which I suspect is thinly veiled in a great deal of losing political strategy. There is such a thing as accelerationism on the right, in which the goal becomes to hasten the collapse of the system on the suspect notion that things have to get worse before they can get better. Malcontents of various stripes are sick and tired of being able to safely go to the store with kids in the car. They desire, above all else, to die violently and in the company of their fellow Photoshop amateurs as the world descends into a chaotic state resembling an unmoderated telegram chat. Or at least that's what they tell themselves until the feds show up and they become paying informants. It is far easier to wreck things than to build them. This not only makes the goal easier to accomplish, it makes recruitment a very simple matter. You don't need geniuses or prudent people or hard workers, just people who see no hope in the future, an army of which the Democrat Party is training in our public schools. They don't even need to be right-wing. The Reds are doing a fine job of tearing a country apart. To break a sweat over this is just conflict-seeking. More to the point, destroying the system is a pretty abstract concept, don't you think? What system? The United States Constitution? The current administration? Capitalism? That sounds an awful lot like fighting institutional racism or climate change, if you ask me. Doctrinaire ideological mysticism is what that is. But for the sake of argument, let's just say that you're the guy who sent the tweet that brought down this so-called system. You tap send and boom, total system failure. Pretty cool, eh? Okay, now what? The people of this country, they're just going to turn around and be like, hey, you over there, could you rule my country now, please? You couldn't win an election when you were actually the good guy. And now you're the bad guy. You couldn't maintain order at rallies in the suburbs while Donald Trump was president of the United States. You think you're going to walk out into the street when there ain't no president and tell the looters, hey, stop right there. I have cooler political views than you. <laughs> One of the most insightful things I ever read was written by a man named David Hines at a site which is sadly no longer online. Fortunately, I archived it because it is just that important. The title of the piece was titled Political Violence is a Game the Right Can't Win, and it shattered many of the myths that lead people down these paths. The whole thing is worth reading, and no less than twice, but I'll quote a short passage which is apt for our purposes and not necessarily exclusive to violence. Mr. Hines explains to us, When it comes to political violence, everybody imagines themselves piloting the helicopters. Nobody imagines themselves clinging desperately to the skids. 
There's a famous cartoon by Sidney Harris that shows a couple of researchers at a blackboard on which there is a series of complicated mathematical equations. In the middle of the blackboard are the words, Then a miracle occurs. The cartoon's caption dialogue from one of the researchers to the other says, I think you should be more explicit here in step two. And then a miracle occurs is a long-standing fringe-right temptation. You see it in all sorts of places. In Ayn Rand's hugely influential Atlas Shrugged, once a lone scientist moves to Galt's Gulch and doesn't have to worry about the leeches, he literally cures cancer. In the much less influential wish-fulfillment novels by literal Nazi Harold Covington, his Mary Sue goes from poverty-stricken and railing into the ether to the inspiring force behind a mass white nationalist movement because for no reason, white people suddenly start listening to his screeds and mailing him five-figure checks. Bluntly put, and then a miracle occurs, is the equivalent of saying, I don't have to change or put forth any effort. Someday I will be great and people will like me for who I am. As righties know, this is something lazy and inadequate people say. That's the end of the quote. The temptation toward destroying the system is not in its boldness, but in its laziness. There's no appointment to be on time for. Ain't no dress code, no cover charge. Nobody whose approval you need to seek. If you do nothing, if you break the law, if you spend all day talking nonsense on the internet, if you sell drugs and pimp women and drink yourself to death, if your kids find you dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, you can call it revolutionary activity and tell yourself that you are securing your place in history. But you are not, friend. There is no system. There's just people doing stuff, and I got news for you. With any luck, people are going to be doing stuff until long after you are dead. And if you want them to do the kind of stuff that you think they should be doing, then you are going to have to get up off your chair and persuade them. This being episode one of Surreal Politics, I hope you'll pardon me for not spelling out a simple path to total right-wing victory. There is not one, and you should treat with skepticism claims to the contrary. I do hope that I have given you a satisfying introduction to realpolitik and to this production. Fanaticism is easier to make entertainment fodder out of than practical politics, as I know from a degree of experience. But I would encourage the fanatics among us to take a hint from Van Jones, who said, I'm willing to forego the cheap satisfaction of the radical pose for the deep satisfaction of the radical ends. I have high ambitions for the future of this production. To achieve them, I will need to devote my life to the project. I believe it is in your interest that I do this, and so I would ask you to pay me for this service. There are a number of ways for you to do this. I try to make it very easy to throw money at me. You can sign up for your membership at surrealpolitics.com shop. That's S-U-R-R-E-A-L-P-O-L-I-T-I-K-S dot com slash shop. And while you are there, you will see other fine products available for sale, which are certainly uh, worth buying. Or you can finance this production charitably with a one-time or recurring payment using a credit or debit card at givesengo.com slash SPM, as in Surreal Politics Media, SPM. I do love cryptocurrency, and you can find my cryptocurrency addresses at surrealpolitics.com slash donate, and we also accept cryptocurrency payments during the checkout process for sales and memberships at the shop. You can send me mail, including checks or money orders, Surreal Politics Media, LLC, 497 Hookset Road, Unit 312, Manchester, New Hampshire, 03104, 497 Hookset Road, that's H-O-O-K-S-E-T-T, there's two T's in Hookset, 
And if you have any other ideas, you can let me know at surrealpolitics.com slash contact. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter while you're on the site. You can find us on Fountain.fm, Podcast Addict, and at least for now, other platforms. But we recommend those two above all. Thank you for tuning in to this premiere episode of Surreal Politics. And congratulations, because you are about to embark on a journey that will change your